welcome back to our Easter Sunday. Now, um, a couple days ago was Good Friday, and several of us here at Perch.Church, we got together on Zoom on Good Friday, and we observed Good Friday together. Okay, Good Friday is the day that we remember as the capital C Church, um, the day that Jesus was arrested, uh, convicted as a criminal, beaten, humiliated, and ultimately crucified on a cross uh, for the sake of our sins. Now, uh, we, He did all this so that we could have a relationship with God, that we would not have to uh, suffer the consequences of death uh, because Jesus already paid the price. Jesus came down to earth as a human being and experienced everything that we humans experience so that He could take our place on the cross so that we can be called God's sons and daughters. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And today we read from the gospel according to Luke. And Luke's gospel is unique from the other three Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and John, okay? In the, the first four books of the New Testament are the four Gospels of Jesus Christ, written from four different perspectives. And Matthew, Mark, and John, uh, as authors, um, have uh, a lot of things in common, okay? Matthew and John are two of Jesus' original 12 disciples. But Matthew, Mark, and John are all Jewish men, okay? But the thing, there's several things about Luke that sets him apart from the other three, okay? First, Luke was a physician, okay? He was a doctor. This meant that Luke was very much interested in the physicality of Jesus' ministry, which included Jesus' healings, um, Jesus' uh, miracles, and certainly Jesus' death and resurrection. And so him being a physician didn't want to take any of these things lightly. And so he perused all of the records and he looked at all the data closely and he heard and paid attention to first witness, eyewitness accounts. And he took all of that very, very seriously before he himself came to believe in Jesus as the Son of God and ultimately in Jesus' death and resurrection. The second thing that made Luke unique was that Luke was a historian. While Luke was a physician by trade, Luke was also a historian um, out of like his own hobby. Luke, unlike Matthew and John, was not one of the 12 disciples, and he wasn't even one of Jesus' followers. So when he set to record and document the events of Jesus' life and ministry, he spoke to many, many, several uh, eyewitness accounts and looked at any proof that he could find. And lastly, third, Luke was not Jewish. Very much like you and me, most of us who are watching this and participating today, he did not come from a Jewish background. Luke came from what the Bible calls a Gentile background. And one of the things that Luke noticed about Jesus' ministry is that Jesus did not spend most of his time with simply Jewish men. 
In fact, Jesus spent a lot of time with those whom we might consider uh, unexpected. Jesus spent a lot of time with people like prostitutes and like sinners and those who were despised by society. And when Jesus resurrected from the dead, okay, that's what today is all about. Okay, Easter Sunday is all about celebrating Jesus' resurrection. And when Jesus resurrected from the dead, he, there were a few things that were very surprising about Jesus' resurrection. Okay, and then we're going to go over it today together. Okay, and that's what today's passage was all about. In Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12, we see that Jesus first appears to a group of women. Women, okay? So what we first learn about Jesus' resurrection is this. Jesus resurrected for the marginalized. Jesus resurrected for the marginalized. Now, if Luke was a historian, and he was, it should be surprising that the first group of people that Jesus appears to after his resurrection is a group of women because for most of human history, women were treated as second-class citizens. Uh, women were kind of treated as second-class citizens. Women were typically not educated. Um, women were really not allowed um, any kind of like space or privilege in like religious circles. And as we heard about last week, as uh, Lauren Blanco has so articulately explained, women were not into certain areas of the Holy Temple, okay? Especially in the Jewish Holy Temple. They were kind of um, left out. Yet the first group of people that Jesus appeared to, uh, that, that the first group of people that Jesus made known his resurrection were this group of women. Now, why would the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection be a group of women? The first woman that uh, is listed in Luke chapter 24 is Mary Magdalene. Okay? Mary Magdalene is most infamous for being a former prostitute whom Jesus saved from being stoned to death by a group of religious uh, men who were religious leaders. And then another woman who, who came to Jesus' tomb on Easter morning was Joanna. Joanna is the wife of Chusa. And she was one of the many people that Jesus healed from sickness, specifically uh, demon possession. And then there was Mary, mother of James, one of Jesus' earliest and most devout followers. Now, Many people don't know this, but Jesus had many followers besides the 12, okay? There were the 12 disciples, and uh, the Bible tells us that there were 70 followers besides the 12 disciples, all right? And then there were um, hundreds and hundreds of crowds that surrounded him whenever he performed miracles or healings of, of different kinds. But these 12 disciples and 70 followers pretty much were with Jesus throughout his ministry. And many people among these 70 followers were women, women. Now, the 12 disciples just happened to be the most famous ones, all right? And the reason, and they were the first ones that Jesus had as his earliest followers. And the reason why Jesus chose these 12 men, these 12 Jewish men specifically to be his disciples, is not because Jesus was sexist or chauvinistic, okay? That, that couldn't be farther from the truth. 
Uh, it was simply because Jesus knew that the society that he existed in at that time was sexist and chauvinistic. Unfortunately, Jesus would not have been taken seriously if any of these 12 disciples that he had were women. He would be discredited as a rabbi if he had a female disciple, okay, which was strictly forbidden uh, in the first century. Um, but that did not mean that women did not follow him. Okay? Uh, there, uh, among the 70, many of those 70 were women. And, men, uh, and Mary, Joanna, and um, Mary Magdalene were among those who were his followers. These three women uh, were some of the most devout followers that Jesus had. And surely they performed uh, a lot of the same teachings that the disciples did, a lot of similar miracles and healings that these 12 disciples did. The daughter of a famous evangelist, Billy Graham, uh, her name is Anne Graham Lotz. Okay, she said this, the first person to be commissioned was a woman and she was commissioned to go to men to share her testimony and then also give his word. I know there are some people who will draw a line and say, I, as a woman, uh, cannot give a testimony, but I can't share that scripture. But Jesus didn't make that distinction. He gave Mary Magdalene both commissions to share her testimony and to give out his word. Amen. Amen. So when these three women, Mary Magdalene, uh, Joanna, and Mary, mother of James, first came to Jesus' tomb and realized that it was empty, and an angel of the Lord told them that he has resurrected from the dead, um, they were strictly commanded, they were told to go tell the other disciples to pretty much uh, share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, to the 12 disciples, these two, 12 uh, Jewish men, well, at the time it was 11, okay, uh, to the rest of these disciples, which is amazing, which is amazing. Um, you probably noticed that this background uh, is different from my usual spot. Um, uh, this, uh, this is not a virtual background, this is actually real. Um, I started a couple, I started a new job a couple weeks ago as a hospital chaplain right here at Adventist Health in Glendale. And part of my onboarding training as a new employee is to watch videos and to read literature on the history, the mission, and the protocols at this hospital. I had to learn a whole bunch of new jargon, terminology, and compliances in the last few weeks. But because it is a faith-based hospital, a lot of the hospital's mission is surprisingly Christ-centered. They even look at Jesus as the great physician since he healed diseases, gave sight to the blind, and comforted the brokenhearted. In fact, as clinicians, they view Jesus Christ as a radical leader because out of his movement, out of the early church, out of the ecclesia, which was a, really a social political movement, came many systemic changes. Jesus did not come to earth, live a perfect life, die on the cross, and resurrect from the dead just to change individuals. Jesus came 
to disrupt systemic racism. Jesus came to create systems of health. And Jesus came to educate the poor and liberate the captives. This hospital right here, Adventist Health Glendale, trains all of its staff and new employees this very concept uh, of this local church uh, in this, through this lens because the local church did not exist, or, or sorry, the local hospital did not exist prior to the early church. I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but uh, it, these kinds of like uh, Christian history is kind of erased from uh, history classes because they don't want to put a, a kind of an unbalanced focus on any particular religion, right? But the local hospitals did not exist prior to the early church. Prior to the early church, uh, only the very wealthy would have access to healthcare, um, and because they were uh, able to afford private doctors. The earliest known record that we have of local hospitals in the world were started by early Christians like Basel in Caesarea, which is modern-day Turkey, and Fabiola in Rome. And these hospitals, uh, a lot of it was paid for by wealthy, healthy Christians. Um, and uh, uh, the patients who couldn't pay for their own medical care uh, would um, would their bills would be covered by these like wealthier Christians now uh, rumor has it that Fabiola of, Fabiola of Rome took such good care of her patients that many of the Christian benefactors would often hang out at these hospitals to volunteer to simply be around people like Fabiola because of her love and care for the patients and then um, Basel's hospital in Caesarea also provided job training for those who were recovering from a disease or an illness or an injury so that they could get assimilated back to regular life as soon as possible, which is incredible, okay? This is like a, a full-service hospital in the fourth century, which is incredible. So Jesus came, the, the, the first reason why Jesus resurrected was uh, Jesus resurrected for the marginalized. And this is evident because the first group uh, who discovered Jesus' resurrection were marginalized women. The second reason why Jesus resurrected was this. Jesus resurrected for the privileged. Jesus resurrected for the privileged. Dr. Cesar A. Cruz is a gang violence prevention advocate and dean of secondary schools program at Harvard University. And he has this great quote about art. Art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. Oh man, isn't that great? Art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. This is precisely why Jesus came. I think you could replace that word art with Jesus. Jesus comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. And we see evidence of this all throughout scripture. In Psalm chapter 18, verse 27, it says, For you save the humble people, but the haughty you bring down. 
And Jesus himself said, The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Jesus disrupted the status quo for everyone. For everyone. Jesus disrupted the lives of the privileged, the powerful, and the corrupt by confronting the major powers of the world and brought the, even the powerful Roman Empire down to its knees. Yet, he looked into the eyes of the lowly and despised people of the world and lifted them up. Those who are passionate about social justice will not want to hear this one. Privilege is a relative term. You might think that you are um, marginalized in society, but if you were to live probably somewhere else in a different country, in a different city even, you might be considered privileged. Maybe you have an old beat up used car, right? And uh, you see your friends or peers like driving nice luxury cars. Um, but if you were to take that car into like Tijuana, Mexico, okay, and you were to live down there for a few years, you would be considered privileged. Or for someone who can only afford public transportation, your old beat up used car is an object of luxury. There are many disadvantages actually that people of privilege have that they do not see, that they are blind to. Let me give you kind of a silly example, okay? My daughter, she's uh, nine years old now, and um, she has many different types of friends, all right? Um, this one particular friend that she has, um, she's white, okay? She's Caucasian, and uh, she is the pickiest eater, okay? Let's call her Sarah, okay? Um, my daughter doesn't have any friends named Sarah, so let's call her Sarah, okay? So Sarah is like the pickiest eater. She, um, she could eat chicken nuggets for uh, every meal for the rest of her life, and I think she'll be happy, all right? Uh, anything that's not like chicken nuggets, french fries, or like baby carrots, uh, she probably won't eat it, okay? And she doesn't even like um, noodles. Noodles, <laughs> right? And that's, uh, that's not even weird, right? But she's such a picky eater that she refuses to eat noodles, okay? And this is like noodles of any kind. I'm talking about spaghetti or like chow mein or like pad thai, okay? Or like uh, ramen. She won't eat noodles of any kind. And she's missing out, right? She's missing out. And I don't know if any of you out there are picky eaters, but if you are a picky eater, um, that's a sign of privilege, okay? Uh, if you're starving to death and all you see uh, in front of you is like broccoli, okay? That broccoli is gonna be the most delicious thing you're ever gonna eat, right? And being a picky eater is a sign of privilege. Now, <laughs> um, this girl, Sarah, okay, Sarah, uh, her being a picky eater is, you know, her being very privileged, obviously, right? Um, but she's missing out so much. And this is just a, this is a silly example of how people of privilege actually are, um, they're really missing out on life. They're missing out on a lot of things. If people of privilege never change, they're the ones who suffer the most. Narrow-mindedness is a form of privilege, but it's also very, very limiting. Racism, racism is a privilege but it's also very, very ignorant. 
Greed. Greed is a privilege. Yet it also leads to incredible loneliness. I have seen this firsthand with people very close to me. And Jesus' death and resurrection is like the ultimate juxtaposition of privilege and poverty. This is no more evident than Jesus being sentenced to death on a cross by Pontius Pilate, the Roman, um, the Roman judge, under the rule of Caesar in the Roman Empire. The late great Martin Luther King even saw this incredible juxtaposition. He said this, Evil may so shape events that Caesar will occupy a palace and Christ a cross, but that same Christ will rise up and split history into AD and BC, so that even the life of Caesar must be dated by his name, by Jesus' name. Yes, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. So as difficult as this may be to swallow, Jesus resurrected not only for the marginalized, but he also resurrected for the privileged. Jesus resurrected to lift up those who are marginalized, and Jesus resurrected also to humble those who are privileged. But ultimately, Jesus resurrected to give all of us hope. Jesus resurrected to give us hope. Prior to Jesus' resurrection, his disciples and followers were hopeless. They were utter, utterly devastated. They were just depressed and hiding in a, a dark room together. And they were crying and they were mourning the loss of their leader, their rabbi, and their friend. And as soon as Jesus resurrected and he appeared to them, he filled them with hope. Hope is a rare commodity these days. When we look around the world today, it's easy to become hopeless and dismal. This world has nothing for me of substance. In fact, the things of this world just seem to always disappoint. When we still are wrestling with these mass shootings that seem to be happening almost every week now, and I'm still not okay, and I'm still not at peace with the shooting that happened in Atlanta um, a little over two, two weeks ago now. Um, these past few weeks, as I've been doing a, my rounds here as a hospital chaplain, um, right at, after the heels of the shooting in Atlanta, uh, I've just been doing a lot of reflection and everything that I hear and, and listen to and learn from the different patients that I'm seeing here, it just causes me to reflect so much about life and faith and the state of our world. And there's this one particular patient um, that's, that stands out to me. Um, 
this this guy was brought in um, because he was relatively young. He was 30 years old, and he was brought into the hospital because he suffered from a stroke, and uh, he kind of I think he OD'd from drinking too much and taking some drugs. And he's the type of guy he like works hard and plays hard, and every weekend I think he gets uh, almost blackout drunk, right? And this one particular weekend. He uh, did his normal binge drinking, and he also took some uh, Oxycontin. And um, he and I were talking, and uh, I was like asking him some questions to cause him to help him reflect and to um, hopefully take this seriously. Um, but he said something that really surprised me. He said, uh, even though this last bout of drinking and doing drugs almost killed him, he said, as soon as he gets better, he's going to drink hard again the following weekend, even if it kills him. And that really surprised me, just knowing that he almost did die. Yet, he doesn't know how to live life and enjoy life without um, the use of sub substance. And there's this like hopelessness that I saw in his eyes that will kind of haunt me forever. The main mission of Jesus coming to earth was not simply to get as many people into heaven as possible, but the main mission of Jesus living his 33 years of his life here on earth, um, the, uh, the perfect life that he lived, to teach about the kingdom of God and these miracles that he performed, the death that he died on the cross to pay for our sins and ultimately resurrect on Easter Sunday on this special day. The reason why Jesus did all of this in a nutshell is to give us hope. It's to give us hope. It's to have us live a life of hope now while we're here on earth. This is why when we pray the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven to give us hope. And that is my hope and prayer for all of you. In closing, I want to leave you with a little poem. Sometimes when I go around the hospital rooms and uh, some of the patients, a lot of the patients are not Christian, um, I shouldn't be shoving the Bible in their face. So I like to read them poems from this book. And that's what I'm going to leave you with tonight or today. All right.